Matthew, I've got one question for you. Oh, hit me up. What about second breakfast? <laughs> I'm Samuel Roberts, I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello! First of all, how was the film Spider-Man No Way Home, a film I can't see because I want to go see my parents at Christmas and I don't want to give them a disease that might kill them. It's tough (laughs) for me. Um, Much like Peter Parker, I'm facing my own um, uh, crisis of conscience. So, uh, yes, how how was the film? Uh, I enjoyed it, and don't worry listeners, I won't spoil any of the spoilers for you. Yeah, I liked it a lot. It riffed on some stuff I really liked. Um, it's it's. I tell you what, though, the first twenty minutes are quite bad, right? And then it, and then because I think you're just waiting for stuff, certain things to happen that you've seen in the trailers, and once that stuff's happening, you're like, oh great, well here we go, we're off to the races. But before right. that, you're like, yeah, 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 <laughs> get on with it. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, like, um, every single thing about this has basically been spoiled in the run up, seemingly. But um, I'll see when I get when I get to it in uh, the new year. I had two things to ask you about. First of all, you messaged me the other day and said. I went to this cinema and I forgot that people can bring big plates of meat into the screening room. <laughs> and like, that's where you saw Spider-Man. And I had yeah. forgotten that there, Bath has a cinema restaurant and that like, that was a thing that kept people were having fucking fine dining and roast dinners yeah. while you're watching Spider-Man fucking, you know, face off against CGI'd um, Alfred Molina or whatever. <laughs> um, so what's the deal with that? What's, uh, what is this venue you've been to? So this is the Tivoli, which is the posh cinema, but I'm beginning to question how posh it is. It's certainly posh in its pricing. It's £17 for an adult ticket. That's a lot. That's a lot. And so you're like, well, what balance is that out? What are you paying for? You're paying for kind of a private sofa or armchair. It's quite a small, exclusive feeling screen. Um, so like, it's a very comfortable environment. But outside of that, you're, you're kind of paying for a smaller screen than you'd get at the Odeon, a slightly weedy sound system, and the fact that people can order food and drinks before the film starts, and then they bring it in. And I don't know if it's because we saw Spider-Man at lunchtime, but there was an almost comedic parade of like <laughs> burgers and massive pizzas um, before the film started. Just these people endlessly bringing these trays in. And after one, you know, one burger walks past you, you're like, man, this room now smells of burgers and meat. But by the time the film started, it was just like a slaughterhouse. It just smelled so meaty and hot and hot like food in that room. And so I actually think it was a, a terrible decision. I thought I'd pay to go to the fancy cinema because then I might avoid, you know, the legions of coughing masses at the Odeon because it's much mm. bigger screens. But I don't know. I don't know if I hate... I think I hated the meat stink more than the threat of disease. Wow. Okay. So all in all, Spider-Man No Way Home gets four sausages out of five. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the other thing that happened is um, you were talking to me before we started recording this today you have had your first like tweet blow up into the stratosphere and like a kind of louis theroux style documentary you were telling me about the ways in which it's changed your life um (laughs) so so do you want to recap what happened there yeah so we watched the film spider-man and we watched the post-credit scenes which there are some and i turned to Catherine in the cinema and said these scenes are always so dumb it's like some random guy comes out and says hey it's me blorco 
and I shrug and go home. I then repurposed that into a tweet. A few of my friends humoured me and liked it, and I thought that was very kind of them. But somehow <laughs> bet- between them and now, uh, it's on like 60,000 likes, which is quite a lot. And it's getting retweeted, and it's the first time I've ever had a tweet do that. And so it's been really interesting to see it from the inside of like, you start off like, yeah, this rules, like, people love my, love my shit. And then waves of people begin turning up saying, like, you're sneering at Marvel fans, why do you hate Marvel fans? And then people <laughs> going, you should watch the credits anyway. Do you dis- disrespect the art of cinema? The hand ringers come out, they start telling you off, and you're like, whoa, 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 this is just a dumb comment. I said to my wife, like, but you, you, you can't keep up with it because there's so much of it. Then everyone starts, like, throwing your own patter back at you with all this Blorco bullshit. Like, I'm endlessly getting tweets about, like, people doing fictional lore for this Blorco character... Then I had people saying I'd rip the idea off from a Star Wars meme, which I promise you I hadn't. Apparently someone did a similar tweet about a Star Wars character called Shit Glurp and like months ago, and that is an internet meme. But the people who see it, they live full time on the internet and they think everyone has seen everything they've seen online. So they're like, oh, check out this fucking shit glurp robber over here. You're like, what the fuck are you talking about? It, it's been really traumatic. And all my excitement has curdled. Um, But then I started seeing... Somehow it's broken into celebrity circles. My version of celebrities, I'll add. No one big. It's not like Chris Evans has liked it. But, uh, you know, like I was saying beforehand, the creator of Mayor of Easttown, a show I really liked, he liked my dumb joke. I mean, that's practically an invitation to come and write season two of Mayor of Easttown with him, I think. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Mayor versus Blorco for season two. I look forward to it. But yeah, this could be a life-changing tweet for me. But uh, I, yeah. I, I will never again envy a friends who have this more regularly because they're either very good at Twitter or they're internet famous and everything they do gets this level of response because it's quite tiring. Like, I suddenly understand, like, all the filters on Twitter. They exist yeah. for you to basically cut this swarm of people out of your life. I welcomed the swarm, but it's... um. Yeah, I'm drowning in it. Well, it's you know a very emotional tale there. I, there's a couple of observations from all that that I find kind of funny, and I just want to pull out. So, um, <laughs> you saying a joke I made to my wife? I've never heard you refer to Catherine as your wife ever. Like, <laughs> it's like you're framing yourself as this everyman figure who's like, <laughs> like those people who were like um, accused of flying drones to Heathrow Airport. Like, it's like my life has been turned upside down for, by this. Me and my wife are going through hell right now. That was. <laughs> that's one part um the second thing is uh is Blorco to the mcu what jinrod dongmax is to the star wars universe matthew i mean jinrod dongmax is a funnier <laughs> made-up name than Blorco, and never exploded in the way Blorco. Blorco, if i knew people were going to be reading that tweet i would have come up with a better fake name than Blorco. ah well i thought it was good i think it was funny than i don't know shituesto or whatever the fuck you said but yes uh very good um i'm glad i got to recap that story on the air and uh, but yeah, I, um, I have resisted doing like a tagging, a follow up tweet going like, listen to the back page pod, because I hate it when people do that, when they try and hijack their own viral tweet. I've decided <gasps> not to do that. I thought if I ever have, if ever, if God ever smiles on me and gives me Twitter success, I will not do that. And I have not done that. Uh, yeah, fair enough. You're just there in the um, in the mentions going, look, if you want to like make fun of Blorco, go ahead, but leave my wife out of this. <laughs> um, that's you. <laughs> I really regret saying that now. <laughs> oh, 
maybe I said wife because I'm trying to like anonymize my life in a way to, to kind of get away from this mass of people. This tw- I'm telling you, this tweet's done a number on me, Samuel. <laughs> yeah, you don't sound like the same man. You sound a little bit shaky, but things will be okay. It'll die down, and uh, people will be angry about something else soon enough. Do you know what? I actually got um, I had a Loki story, a story about Loki saying uh, how much I didn't like the second half of it. I can't remember if I told the story on the podcast before. It was on Tech Radar. I had someone email me saying, um, stick to flipping burgers, you FC and all this stuff. Um, <laughs> and like, <laughs> was it Tom Hiddleston? <laughs> uh, I did have like, but I had some, all kinds of weirdos in my mentions being like, um, look, we get it. You liked Owen Wilson, but that's not what the show is now. And it's like, oh God, this is the worst thing in the world. <laughs> um, and it's just, yeah, I just thought like, I don't know, of all the things to go to bat for, like the MCU is such a, if I'd like slammed licorice pizza and you were going to bat for Paul Thomas Anderson, I'd be like, fair enough, you know, but um, <laughs> this guy doesn't like Phantom Thread or whatever. Like, um, <laughs> all the Phantom Thread stands coming for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that such is the way with the MCU. It's just people defending three-star content. Hmm. Enough of that. I've got another quick little uh, a podcast lore update. <laughs> sure. Uh, I got a secret Santa at work, and it was an intermezzo gift voucher. What? Uh, two questions. Those gift vouchers exist? And like... Uh, <laughs> apparently so. He, unless he invented it for me. <laughs> <laughs> Does it just say... I owe you one baguette signed, I don't know. Yeah, whoever. pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And quite a nice gift, actually. Pretty yeah, thoughtful. Uh, uh, that is like... that is. I don't actually know who, it gave, who gave it to me, but that is an amazing secret centre. Like, that is 100% something I will use and enjoy. <laughs> Someone harbouring a bit of guilt about the uh, Christmas sandwich leaderboard, no doubt. Just oh, sort yeah. of a bit of a kind of like Ralph Wiggum, Valentine's Day, Simpsons episode situation. <laughs> Oh, I can't believe I've entered the Wiggum zone. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, yeah, that's uh, that's a good update. And like um, I said this on Twitter as well, Matthew. But um, people should also know. In the last episode, you mentioned that um, uh, I could go on your Nintendo Switch Online family membership. That has mm. happened now. So just wanted to make that clear for the listeners <laughs> out there. So um, <laughs> there's your law. Maybe the, uh, the episode can now can now begin. Yes. Um, so in this episode. We're marking the 20th anniversary of uh, Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. It released in cinemas on December 19th, 2001. And uh, we're recording this on December 19th. And so um, we thought it would be a good a, a good kind of excuse to talk about Lord of the Rings sort of footprint in games, as well as its place in wider culture. More than that, I was looking for an episode that was a little bit Christmassy, but wasn't specifically a, an episode about Christmas games. And Lord of the Rings is sort of Christmassy. And so... As is my way, I've bullied Matthew Castle into following me down this path of madness, and we'll see where it leads. Matthew, how are you feeling about discussing the Lord of the Rings motion picture franchise? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I love these films. I haven't rewatched them for a while, uh, but I do cherish them. What we're going to do in this episode, we've got like a first part where we're going to talk about Lord of the Rings more generally, a bit about the films and their kind of place in pop culture. And then the ways in which it kind of like affected other pop culture, including games, and how um, what kind of uh, you know imprint it left basically on the landscape. And then in the second part, we're going to go through I think every single game that was inspired by the films specifically. So we're not going to do every single Lord of the Rings game because that actually includes stuff like the Hobbit text adventure, 
or shadow facts, games that are far too old for me and Matthew to understand or talk about with any authority. Um, so we're instead going to talk about some 7 out of 10 action games from the early yes. 90s, which is uh, much more a wheelhouse. Yes. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's not like a super dense episode, I would say. Like, um, you know, it's not uh, it's probably not going to be as in-depth as like the Halo episode was, for example, for <laughs> discussing those different games. But it will be fun, just because I think Lord of the Rings is a good, juicy subject matter. Mm. And maybe it's got something in common with our um, perennially unpopular James Bond games episode, which is uh, <laughs> still languishing in the uh, in at the bottom of the um, <laughs> back page pod views uh, leaderboard. So, uh, um, R.I.P. Yeah. Bond. <laughs> That's what happens when you make a podcast under an hour long. And that, now, I mean, you know, all these episodes later, an hour is how long it takes for us to get to the subject of the episode after we talk <laughs> about fucking your Twitter trauma and like Christmas sandwich updates and stuff. But um, yeah, so Matthew, let's go straight into it. So was Fellowship a big deal to you when it released back in 2001? What are your memories of the film? Uh, I remember it becoming a huge deal when I saw it. You know, like I knew it was going to be big and, you know, I was probably... How old would I have been? Yeah, I would have been 16. So, like, you know, super getting into films at that particular time. And then... But I wasn't, like, you know, queuing up. I wasn't, like, dressed as, you know, a freaking dwarf on launch day or anything um, to get in. But then I saw it and it was, you know, one of the sort of definitive cinema experiences I've had. And I was just instantly, you know, blown away by just the scale and detail and, and just how rich it was, even without any attachments. I hadn't read the books at that point. So even without any attachment to that world or those characters, you know, it's it's the, the stuff of top 20 films of all time for me instantly. And then I just after that, you know, became incredibly invested in, you know, the, the, the wider film project in the next two films. How about you? Were you, were you big on this beforehand? No, it was sort of like, I remember this and Harry Potter, came out in the same year and i was probably more hyped for harry potter at the time just because i'd read those books since i was 10 i'm roughly the same age as the characters in harry potter um those games oh yeah sorry that series of which has become cursed for very different reasons that i won't go into obviously but like um i think that i was more excited about that lord of the rings seemed more grown up and on a first watch i thought it was spectacular but i felt a bit overwhelmed by it and it was when we rented it from blockbuster a few months later that it really got its hooks into me and I became obsessed with it and um because my dad has a, a bit of the old kind of like car boot sale seller energy he um <laughs> he actually recorded the VHS that from Blockbuster onto another tape <laughs> oh my and god um, <laughs> I can't believe you'd throw your dad under the bus for this criminal act well I mean what who's gonna do anything about it now do you know what I mean like um it's uh it's safe now the statute of limitations is gone then again I did mention that he bought me GTA when I was 13, so I'm building up a library of evidence against him on this podcast. Um, but uh, shout out to you, Dad, uh, there. Um, I like so... that this podcast ends with, with Games Court, but it's actual court, and it's a bad on trial. <laughs> I'm sure you and I will end up in jail at some point as a result of this podcast, Matthew. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a, a massive deal for me too. Like, um, I think that it hit just the right age. Like, I think about Lord of the Rings is probably most comparable to something like Star Wars for me in terms of how people who were around when those films hit the theatres were um, yeah. interpreted it. But like, um, and it's funny though, because I was massively into it while it was happening. And so when the next two films came out, I was hugely into those. But 
after that, in around 2004-ish time, I felt very done with it because it had been so pervasive in the pop culture landscape. It was fucking everywhere for so long. It swept the Oscars in 2004, obviously. And um, it just becomes so kind of like, I don't know, whatever the early noughties version of a meme was, there was a lot of that going around. And like, I just was a little bit done with it. But The Fellowship of the Ring was my favourite of the three by quite a long way. And I think they're all I think they're all good, obviously. But I think just a sense of a journey in that one and all the characters being together and like the set pieces and the, the ending. It's just a like a that's like a five star film for me. And mm. the rest are probably like four star films for me. So mm. yeah, but it's a huge deal. Like um I I, re- I watched this film and then I went to um uh, France in 2002 on holiday, like a four-week holiday, and I ran out of Game Boy batteries in like the first uh, week, and so I basically just read all three books um, back to back, and uh, that was intense, but also the best way to read it, just absolutely absorbing this information, and when you're that age, you have the capacity to absorb all that lore stuff, mm. just because you don't have anything better going on in your head, so... You just fill your head with um, nonsense. So I was there reading the appendices being like, oh, um, <laughs> Galad means light in Elvish and all this stuff. <laughs> were, you, were you big into the Tom Bombadil songs? <laughs> I must admit, because Tom Bombadil wasn't in the film, I couldn't even conceptualise what he was from reading the book. Like, <laughs> I just thought, well, this is a fucking long diversion, isn't it? And like, um, <laughs> it's like, uh, it's, it takes some ages and ages to meet Aragorn in that first book. You think it's like, you know, it's like three chapters. It's not. It's mm. like, it feels like re- you've read about 800 pages by that I, point. I like the idea of you visualising the Tom Bombadil scenes and it's got like all the actors from the film in and then just like a blue rectangle where <laughs> Tom Bombadil should be because you just can't even you know conceive of such a thing <laughs> i pictured the um the tofu from resident evil 2 um that was like <laughs> it just and, and then it just sang and that was it that was all i could come up with yeah so uh, yeah that was my kind of like lord of the rings experience and then yeah so um in a wider sense like i say by 2004 i felt like i was sort of purging lord of the rings from my system a little bit there's too much of it around a similar thing happened with a lot of my pop culture from this time, weirdly, The Matrix, which is, you know, obviously back in the headlines at the moment because a new film coming out. The Matrix is another thing that I got deep into in my teenage years and then I just needed a massive break from it after that. And so mm. I kind of like parked him after that for quite a long time. But then, um, yeah, over time became sort of more into them again and have um, have been watching them regularly. And now I just, you know, they're part of the uh, landscape of pop culture in a way that I just, I, I know I'll watch them probably five to ten more times before i die whenever yeah. that is um Ooh, so don't talk about your death it's <laughs> <laughs> a bit grim isn't it it's, it's be a festive christmas episode um well how did you feel about the other two films matthew do you think um how do you think fellowship compared to them yeah i i think i'm with you on thinking fellowships fellowships like the most sort of consistently like enjoyable of all of them it's probably the best in terms of like you know the action set pieces are kind of smaller you get all the characters you love obviously it sheds characters and splits them up as it goes along i mean it's hard because I think Two Towers, like the 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 Battle of Helm's Deep, is like one of the greatest bits of cinema of all time. And mm. when they charge down the hill, when Gandalf comes down the hill with everyone, I mean that is that's like a probably top five cinema moment of all time for me. Like I, you know, I I can almost put put up with that film just for that because it's just so like yes. Same with in the third one, I'm a real sucker for the um when they light the torches on the mountains. Yeah. And it plays that epic music. Like, honestly, I was, like, bawling in the cinema when that <laughs> happened. Because I was just like, oh, it's so epic. 
<laughs> it's just a load of torches on top of mountains. Uh, but, you know, it's that the men of Rohan and Gondor are coming together, Matthew. It's, yeah. Um, only oh. together can they take out fucking Sauron's. What's the fruit the Mad King eats very messily? Uh, I thought it was a tomato, isn't it? Doesn't it get tomatoes tomato. everywhere? Yeah. yeah. That was unpleasant. Um, yeah, so no, I, I think yeah. I think you're right. Like for, uh, two and three, I am I'm like less into. It. I would probably I would probably give them all five star five stars because they're all they've all got epic stuff in them, and the scale of them is just so is so awesome. And like the fact that it never loses its attention to detail, and it never loses just the craft of like the individual shots you know the level of love and detail that's inside like bilbo's or frodo's house or whatever is is as you know you never lose that no matter how big the the film gets i mean that that was like the huge takeaway from all of them i just couldn't believe the just the scale and the detail of all the army and when you see all the but maybe this is informed a bit by having seen all those you know hours and hours of documentaries they shot about them showing them like making every prop and having like armies of armorers basically making all the armor for the orcs and stuff but that that realism and just the sort of authenticity and the fact that the physicality of it really comes through and it it kind of felt like it was going to usher in this like new age of like epic real cinema but it sort of didn't you know it's followed up by just just the the huge dumping ground of, of of CG, and I know there's CG in Lord of the Rings, but there's so much CG in like the blockbuster scene that follows, where I I don't have any of that admiration, I guess, for like the Marvel films. Say, you know, I, I just don't think they exist in the same way that the Lord of the Rings films like really existed, like in camera, and and that for me, it it, it just it feels like the sort of the you know the biggest sort of one of the biggest sort of cinematic achievements in that way, but also totally like the end of an era it's interesting i was reading an article in the guardian today which they had a lord of the rings anniversary article and they were saying you know did this you know is lord of the rings to kind of blame for what modern cinema is in terms of like everything you know you're just part of an ongoing series of films now nothing is standalone you know in the way that they committed to the three lord of the rings films and shot them all the time does that sort of usher in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of that. And I, I I, don't know that it does, just the fact that it's, you know, I don't really see another way of doing Lord of the Rings than doing all three. Like, you know, it's sort of inevitable that way. Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, this year we saw Dune release and they kept very quiet in the marketing about the fact that it was basically called Dune Part 1 and that there will be a Dune Part 2. I think they did say it was like half the book, but when you it takes watching it for you to realise just how how much it ends in the middle of the story. Um, yeah. And they didn't have the confidence to like film them all back-to-back back and make them all back-to-back. Back. And what makes Lord of the Rings such an amazing undertaking in retrospect is that they did have that faith, that they did put their money down, and they were like, we trust you to deliver this vision, and we're going to, even if it, the first one fails, we've paid for the whole lot. We have committed to this for three years. And mm. like... With a with a filmmaker who, on paper, didn't do like loads that was comparable to those films. Yeah, really. it is mad. Yeah, he must have been so good at pitching that film. Mm. You know, like he must have just sold it to them, or, or just on the power of his enthusiasm and charisma. Because his previous track record, while I love the films of Peter Jackson, there's nothing there pointing to the fact that he could do Lord of the Rings. Yeah, what's that film where there's like 
some women naked and Hugh Grant's in it. And it's like Sam Neill's there as a kind of like pervy artist. Like, uh, um, is that? I don't know if that is Peter Jackson. That's Sirens. Oh right, okay. Is that not a Peter Jackson film? Uh, he no, he did. Uh, very confused with Heavenly Creatures with Kate Winslet. <laughs> oh right, okay. Oh dear, that's on me. That is um, my uh, getting my sort of like uh, slightly bawdy, um, sort of like <laughs> slightly bawdy films of the nineties where you used to be able to get really famous people to take their clothes off. <laughs> yeah, you basically, you can't, you can't do it anymore. An easy mistake to make. Well, it's funny because I, I don't know what the con- conclusion the Guardian writer came to, but like The Hobbit is what happens when that franchise machinery just like runs amok and doesn't have a kind of proper vision and is just ends up being massively disappointing and feeling like a big franchise exercise, which is mm. The Hobbit. The first one's pretty good, then the last two are just terrible. They're awful. The, set, the last one's like a one star film, I think. It's just completely <gasps> irredeemable. I don't know if you one have any star. take on that, but oh, it's so bad though. Like, I've only it, seen it the one time, but I didn't hate, hate, hate it. I thought I didn't think it was good, but I, I, it had some good special effects. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for sure. But like, it's just—I don't know. It's like, ah, uh, it, it, I found it out so. Story. It's just a big battle, isn't it? And then, then it ends. Yeah, it just—it just because it sets up Richard Armitage's character. I can't remember his name. Um, Is he Thorin? Thorin, that's it. Yeah, Thorin Oakenshield sets him up as like this very troubled king. And like possibly like a doomed tragic figure, but they lose the thread of it after the first film, and he just basically becomes a jerk. Then he dies, and that's kind of it. And that's his arc, um, <laughs> and it's not very interesting. I mean, that's that's going to be our arcs too. So <laughs> there's loads and loads of scenes of him just glowering next to some gold in that second one. You're like, oh god, can this just fucking end? And like, um, <laughs> I only saw him for the first time last year. Actually, I watched them. Um, I'd seen the first one before, but um, I only watched all three back to back last year. So. Um, yeah, that's a big disappointment. But um, I don't know. What did the Guardian writer say? Because I don't think that you can really make the connect- a connection between um, Lord of the Rings and the MCU. I mean, he, I mean, he he sort of said it was like the double whammy of Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. But they're finite projects and they're standalone stories. I think they're quite different to what happens in the MCU, where, yes, they are standalone stories, but they're also part of this ongoing project and... There are some Marvel films which feel like, at the end of it, when you add it all up, you think, was this just set up for the next film, really? Like, did this film need to happen? Could you have just told us that this happened and it would have been fine? And I think the answer's often yes. I I think it's unfair to kind of equate the two, though. Like, just the level of craftsmanship and and the focus and the finality of Lord of the Rings is, is just a totally different thing. It's a bit different. Um, I think they just wanted someone to have a spicy headline on the Guardian. <laughs> they look, I've worked in media, I get it, that's fair. Um, <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a big difference between, like you say, the kind of, um, you know, the sort of set decoration of Hobbiton versus uh, David Harbour doing a Russian accent like he's in Goldeneye. Like, there's a big <laughs> difference there. That may be a bit reductive, but like, uh, you know what I mean? Oh, I had a, a, a thing I just remembered. When... Um two and three came out they started doing film premieres for them in uh, in that uh, in winchester where i lived oh, and yeah. obviously winchester is not where they had the world premiere of uh, two towers they called it a premiere and what it actually was was it was we just saw the film but beforehand uh we we got to have a sausage roll in the um car showroom next door to the cinema <laughs> Were they served by anyone notable from the films? No, so, no. Maybe like the mayor of Winchester was there with his big old chain or his bell or whatever it is <laughs> a, a mayor has. 
Not even Billy Boy, didn't he come down? No, no. no. Funnily okay. enough, they didn't have... A, I mean, they've got enough cast to send them across the country, but it'd be a bit rough if, like, the, the main show's in London and then they're like, Jonathan Rhys-Davies, you've got to go to Winchester <laughs> and have a sausage roll in a Audi showroom next door to the screen cinema. <laughs> uh, it, it may be apocryphal, but, like, um, the same thing happened in my hometown where people were saying, like, the premiere of um, James Bond, This Is Die Another Day at the time, um, is, is happening in Gunwharf Keys in Portsmouth, and the Queen herself will be there. And <laughs> it never happened, as far as I could tell. Um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> the Queen's coming to watch Bond. Oh, it's a good headline. <laughs> yeah, she would have walked out after he was fucking, you know, his car turned invisible. And <laughs> She's like, fuck his. that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good, Matthew. So I'd like one more point to make on Denethor, by the way. And okay. um, I do think that, like, it's a very powerful metaphor um, to see a man angrily eat tomatoes to indicate that he's not very nice. Um, very powerful visual metaphor, um, you know, very subtle, and um, the audience can kind of read into what that means. But yeah, that this man is angrily eating tomatoes. What does it say about his inability to lead? Um, I just think that's a very powerful bit of filmmaking by Peter Jackson. Oh, so. That's why didn't I learn? Because I ate uh, uh, a tomato very angry on my first day as editor of O and M. Maybe <laughs> that's just what lost the team back then. <laughs> um, okay, so Matthew, Lord of the Rings impact. Then, so um, do you think it led to a surge of interest in fantasy? I've been like, I guess, sort of um, theorizing a little bit with this, but you can make a very natural connection between Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, for example, because it shows how you can do you know uh, uh, basically like an adaptation of high fantasy with a big budget and do it well with um credible actors and also um put sean bean in both just to show people that it's a fantasy thing and um <laughs> that's very good but like um in a wider sense i wonder does lord of the rings lead to this bigger surge of interest in in things like uh like the elder scrolls uh, with oblivion or skyrim or even like um things like how uh, Dungeons and Dragons has become so enormous and like we've had the Wheel of Time and fantasy is such big business do you think that starts with Lord of the Rings or is it just kind of like one sort of like stop along the way of, of something that was going to happen anyway yeah I mean I think what you said earlier about how this being like your and my Star Wars is probably key to it in the same way that Star Wars comes along, becomes the definitive sort of pop culture artifact of its age, and then everyone has to shift into Star Wars mode. That's when you get, like, James Bond in space in Moonraker, and you start getting a lot more sci-fi TV shows, and there's a lot, you know, a lot of people are having a go at it. So, you know, in a way, I feel like there was a little bit of a gap between, you know, it, it wasn't like... You know, after Lord of the Rings, I can't remember there being anything sort of immediately heavy fantasy. Then Game of Thrones comes along, and Game of Thrones is so massive that that becomes the sort of touchstone for everything. So now we're living in the everyone's trying to make a Game of Thrones. They don't say, like, oh, everyone's still trying to tap into that Lord of the Rings magic. They say, you know, even Lord of the Rings, the TV show, they say, oh, it's Amazon's Game of Thrones instead of, oh, it's Amazon's Lord of the Rings films. Uh, so... You know, I feel like it's maybe been a little, a little lost or just overshadowed by the, you know, just the TV sort of gargantuan phenomenon that is Game of Thrones and the fact that it was like around for so many years has just kind of like pushed the other thing out of the limelight. If you know, it it, it struck me this last week that loads of people there have been loads of articles about Lord of the Rings going up because of the anniversary and people are like. 
oh shit, yeah, that's one of my favourite things of all times. How did I forget about that? Like, I was a little bit like that this week. Just thinking about it and prepping for the podcast, I was like, oh, yeah, I haven't watched this for ages. Why? That's mad. Like, it's one of my favourite films. Why didn't I do that? So, yeah, I, I, in my head, that's how it sort of played out. Basically, the MCU does come along and it has changed the way things are franchised generally. And, like... Lord of the Rings was before that, so it didn't. It wasn't quite subject to the same thing. And then, mm. um, obviously, the Hobbit happened, but that was always going to happen anyway. And the TV show feels more like like how with the Matrix, there's a fourth one coming out, or you know, allegedly there are Spider Men in this No Way Home film. At least that's the kind of rumor mill. And like, there's this kind of uh, sort of like shock wave of old culture coming back and what else can we do with this thing that was actually just meant to be three films and we left it alone and now it has to kind of exist forever which is how things are just sort of happening in the kind of Mm. franchise space at the moment which is you know arguably depressing i guess but uh i don't know i I don't i don't feel like it's it's totally eroded pop culture as i know it but um Mm. yeah lord of the rings was slightly before that in terms of how it affects fantasy though I was thinking about Oblivion specifically because Mm. when you look at its predecessor, Morrowind, it was a much stranger looking game in terms of like this kind of quite fungi-ish, strange looking sort of fantasy world. And by by contrast, Oblivion looks like something that someone who has seen Lord of the Rings might enjoy. And I don't know if it shapes some of the thinking, but I think it certainly extends its appeal beyond what it was before. Morrowind, I was considered a bit of a niche game. But Oblivion mm. was a mass, massive success. And I, I feel like there's a changing attitude there where maybe people who always saw pop, uh, this kind of pop culture as being very geeky just sort of suddenly were on board with it because Lord of the Rings just sold how exciting it was when it was done well. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of my theory, Matthew. Yeah, I like that theory. That 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 actually never occurred to me, that sort of shift. But you're right. Like, Oblivion is quite... Lord of, you know, it opens with that shot of that big white tower. The music is quite Lord of the Ringsy in hindsight. Yeah. Um, that kind of big, like, whoa, this lush orchestral, this is so exciting. It's definitely not weird. It's It feels super mainstream from the off. Yeah, I think that's a good theory. Have the yeah, theory ever talked about this? I don't know, actually. I didn't do enough research for that. I was too busy um, looking up 7 out of 10 action games from the PS2 era. Ah, yes. <laughs> Eat your hearts out, retronauts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, very. it was very much a case of um, just... That was just kind of, like, my thinking in terms of how that series has developed. Just because Oblivion still has your, you know, uh, sort of, like, Khajiit, which I know you love, Matthew. Ugh. But, like... Um, <laughs> It's a, li- a, bit, a bit less strange than um, Morrowind. And um, I think that, you know, obviously as well, they've got like Sean Bean in it and stuff. The touchstones are there. The music, like you say, um, very much um, ties into that. I even think that when you look at the shift from um, Baldur's Gate to Dragon Age of Bioware, like um, Dragon Age Origins feels a bit more like... It kind of starts with something that feel starts with a battle that feels very Lord of the Ringsy, And like... That's not to say Baldur's Gate wasn't a big success on PC, it was. But Dragon Age was like a a multi-kind of format success and a massive franchise Mm. that was born, basically. And again, I think that was 2009. And so this stuff emerges in the wake of Lord of the Rings. And I think it just, it leads to bigger and bigger things. And then obviously The Witcher is part of that too. Yeah, uh, I don't know if it's just... You know, because you know some of the fantasy tropes are just so established now. It's it's hard to say. Like, did Lord of the Rings sort of 
it, it didn't invent like the look of elves, but like you know, we're watching some of The Witcher season two, and and just like the elf costumes and the kind of even like the elf performances are feel kind of sort of slightly ethereal and reminiscent of Lord of the Rings. And I don't know if that's just the fact that they're all tapping into the concept of an elf, and that is just fundamentally what an elf is, you know, across across the entire genre, you know. And similarly with dwarves, you know, like in my head. You know, dwarves will always have kind of heavy Scottish accents, or that, you know that kind of vibe, because that's that's what they're like in Lord of the Rings. That's 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 the first go-to. But maybe there are loads of examples of this before Lord of the Rings that I just either haven't seen or have forgotten. Well, Lord of the Rings art direction very inspired by. Like, I think it's the illustrations of Alan Lee. I think it is. Um, right. I hope I got his name right there. But uh, again, should have done more research, really. Um, <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, I think that that's you know fantasy art kind of inspired it but they showed you how to put it on the screen and i, I definitely think that like when you look at the color palette of the witcher and game of thrones like the lord of the rings is basically a handbook on how to do that without it looking kind of campy or rubbish mm. so yeah i think there's there's something in that I yeah, wonder so- how many of the people who made these shows watched all the behind the scenes features and that <laughs> acted as like a a school you know a school for filmmakers because it was so comprehensive those dvds of lord of the rings and like the, the amount of stuff they showed you know it sort of showed you how to make how to stretch sets you know like how, you know the, the mix of set and green screen how to make that stuff like really sing and you know what really matters what you want in camera and what you don't like you that must have been an inspiration because, you know, I haven't gone on to be a filmmaker or anything, but like I watched that stuff and absorbed it and felt like, oh, that's how you do it. You know, it almost felt like a how to. Yeah, I think so. Complete side note, by the way, those um, DVD extras. I don't think I've ever seen my dad happier than when he was watching <laughs> the extras on the extended edition DVDs of The Lord of the Rings. Like just sort of like he's not a very expressive man generally, but I think he was just so serene going into like such granular detail about the <laughs> fucking shoes that Mariel is wearing or whatever <laughs> like I just think it was just fulfilled in a way that was kind of like sort of beautiful and um yeah I just wanted to kind of note that but yeah they were oh, very comprehensive like, did he watch did he watch the multiple commentaries <laughs> I, I think he did actually yeah he would have them on while he was ironing like it was like uh the, the most dad thing you can possibly imagine but um <laughs> Yeah, they got some real use those extended edition DVDs, but um, they were good. They were good, like early noughties artifacts. Those things, yeah, for sure. Um, so, um, yeah, quite, on that note, Matthew, theatrical versus extended editions. Where are you at with that? Uh, I'm kind of a theatrical guy. Um, it might be awful. I don't know if I've seen all the extended editions. I've got the extended Fellowship, and I've definitely seen that. I don't know if I've seen the others. Is that awful? Is that a, a bin this podcast off moment? I don't know. No, I don't think so. I mean, they are really fucking long. It's not practical to rewatch them every time. I yeah. personally think that the extended edition of Fellowship is the best extended edition. Just because otherwise you've got a lot of, like, Frodo and Sam taking L's on the way to Mordor. Just, like, a lot of, you know, a lot of basically L's being dropped on them by um, uh, the forces of Sauron, spiders, Gollum, all that stuff. So it's a, it's a hard journey for them. And, like, um, on a rewatch, it's not quite as fun as, like, Aragorn... Gimli and Legolas like doing their whole kind of like lads on tour to Rohan thing it's just right. um, a bit harder work um so yeah like that that's that's my takeaway I think if you can do anything to sort of curtail that a bit the theatrical cuts are the other other yeah way to go but um mm. yeah that's uh, a far too granular answer really but good um so so how did you kind of like I guess you, you mentioned that you 
realized this week that this was one of your favorite things do you remember how you sort of fell away from it or or how it became like less of a thing in your life because it really was like at the center of pop culture and like i say like the matrix i just burned out on it and i needed to just get away from it and i sort of put it put it behind me a bit and then i've just come back to appreciate it in the last like maybe five years what was your sort yeah, of like, I, I, yeah I, well it coincided the the trilogy ended just as i went to university and i did have a big lord of the rings poster in my room at university but at the same time i don't know you uh, th- th- those couple of years that's a period where you're you're being inundated with so much new stuff and new people and new tastes and i feel like you can change a lot in in that time as well like the stuff mm. you're into and you know i was i was super into film i think because i because i was you know such a big sort of film nerd i just had a hunger you know i i i couldn't just exist being a fan of one thing i was a fan of film and wanted to see all film so i was just like move on move on always moving on also, like, I don't, I don't think it was like I went to university and I didn't want to be a big Lord of the Rings guy, as if there was some sort of stigma attached to that. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not like I, I didn't want to turn up and be like, you know, the first thing I do is like a Gollum impression to someone because <laughs> that's just, I just, well, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's weird because that's what you did when we met. And it was yeah, like, well, uh, uh, yeah, I'm different now. I found myself <laughs> after uni, uh, but at the time it was just kind of like. It's the kind of thing you'd see someone else do, and you'd be like, "Oh, yikes!" Uh, yeah. like, it was like the that version, that day's version, of like Borat impressions. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, because yeah. it was yeah, it was a little bit pre pre. It was definitely pre the film Borat because that came out when I was at uni. I did go and see Sean Astin talk at, at the union about the films, and I got him to sign his autobiography afterwards. So I met I met a Hobbit at university. That was exciting. Except when I was queuing up, I turned around quite fast. And um, smashed his kid in the head with my rucksack, which was embarrassing. So that's my Sean Aston story. I had no idea that was going to... I had no idea that happened. That's amazing. How have you waited this long to tell me that? Because I'm sure you've told me about Sean Aston before, doing some kind of like signing thing. But, oh, that's so good, Matthew. Um, so you brained his kid. Good. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I asked him because I, w- I was running a film society. I was I, w- I was at a college called Mansfield, and I was like, "Oh, it'd be really funny if I got him to sign something to Mansfield Film Society, so I could tell people that he was like the patron of the film society." Mm-hmm. So I was like, "Could you write like a little message of support rather than two minutes?" And um, he obviously misheard me, and he wrote, <laughs> "This is bug- this has been bugging me ever since." <laughs> Instead of writing Mansfield, he wrote Mansfrell. <laughs> Is that a Lord of the Rings character? I've not heard <laughs> well, of that Well, that's one. the thing. It sounds sort of fantasy-ish. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I knocked over his kid, and he wrote something wrong in my book. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was uh, those are my two Sean Aston anecdotes. <laughs> that's a great story. Um, so you also went to, obviously, you went to um, Oxford University, and that's like a big... You, uh, didn't we even go to the Tolkien pub on your stag do? Like, um, this big... Is that right? Is there a big Tolkien sort of thing there is that yeah it's the it's the the eagle and child yeah i i don't think we did go there i never i never went there at university just because it's a bit of a touristy thing or it's a little bit like oh it's the tolkien pub i think that's the one he went to um uh with old c.s lewis or whoever back in the day yeah i mean the town is very tolkieny for sure but the films had all been out by then so maybe like the buzz of it had subsided a bit 
Yeah, I, I noticed um, the the town was much bigger on uh, Philip Pullman when I was there. And I thought, oh, is that because he's alive and therefore it's a bit easier to sort of talk about his stuff? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't really, don't really, yeah, don't really know where I'm going with that one. But uh, yeah, <laughs> the games were kind of interesting to see grow alongside it because I feel like they were sort of a mega budget priority 3A and then they sort of die off in the late noughties quite horribly. Um, mm. And then like... There's kind of a few years in the wilderness, and then we get the kind of uh, Shadow of Mordor, Shadow of War uh, games from yeah. Warner Brothers when the license goes to them. Um, do you have any memories of the Lord of the Rings games generally, Matthew, and, and their part in the whole thing? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I can remember, you know, playing like demos of them and, and you know, thinking that uh, particularly the direct movie tie-ins were incredibly swish, and we'll, you know, obviously talk about them in more detail in a second, but... Um, you know, I, yeah, I, back then, like, if you were a big film, you probably did have a licensed game. That's obviously changed now. So it didn't, like, stand out as, oh, this seems unusual. I thought they were unusually good at the time. And I can remember thinking they were, you know, pretty much like what you'd want from a licensed game. And a lot of the, you know, I remember some of the chatter around them about how authentic they were and how they worked with you know, the film production teams and the talent as well. And so they they were, you know, quite like invested in them, but they probably got drowned out a bit, you know, m- movie license games weren't necessarily like where it was at for like mega hit, for like critical hits back then. So, yeah, I don't know. They, they were just kind of, they were there. They weren't like right in front of me, but they're definitely, I was aware of them. Yeah, I, I think that kind of speaks to my relationship with them too. I was always a bit surprised to learn that Peter Jackson was apparently quite down on EA's approach to the license because obviously when he does um, the King Kong, another film that never fucking ends a few years later, um, <laughs> he would do it with Ubisoft and wanted to work with Michel Ansel. And so that King Kong game is quite quite notable, quite interesting. Um, mm. It's a favourite among people who want to get a thousand uh, gamer score um, instantly on uh, on Xbox. So, whereas I thought the Lord of the Rings games were very glossy and like relative to a lot of the licensed games of the time, were actually pretty high end. We're actually like mm. not as bad as they could have been, and and there were some genuinely interesting ones too, as we'll get into. But um, yeah, I was always quite surprised that he was kind of down on them. So, Matthew, shall we take a quick break there and come back and we'll um, we'll go through the games one by one? Yeah, let's do it. Welcome back to the podcast. So, in this section, we're going to go through all of the games that were based on the Lord of the Rings films. I think this is the case. Like, um, I'm not actually sure exactly how the uh, Warner Brothers ones were delineated, but I assume because they made the films that the games they published were based on the uh, the movies as well. So oh, they've got they've got the movie Gollum in them. That's true. Yeah, and but otherwise they're quite loosely tied. I think oh, yeah. actually, like War we'll in the North. <laughs> yeah, War in the North actually has um, has uh, Aragorn in it as well. So uh, the Viggo Mortensen version. So uh, right. Yes, we'll get to that. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of a, an odd history, but there's some interesting stuff here. So we'll go through them one by one. So first up, Matthew, the Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers came out in 2002. There was no Fellowship of the Ring game. I always got the impression that maybe the success of the first film took people by surprise and so there was suddenly this i think ea announced that they were making uh basically like two tie-ins to the next two films and an rpg and then it feels like they were kind of like sort of marshaled into action and then that happened because normally you'd see a tie into the first film as well but this game would amalgamate levels from both uh both fellowship and the two towers mm. and 
this game is kind of why I wanted to do this podcast because I probably played it for like a hundred hours or something. Um, oh wow! All right, I didn't know that. <laughs> it was a very dependable piece of fan service for me. So before I get to that, do you have any memories of this one? Yeah, so I've, I've definitely played it. I don't know if we like rented it or something. We we, we played a demo of it for sure. Uh, some of my memories of it blur in a little bit with um, Return of the King, but. Yeah, I, I remember it being quite heavy into look how authentic it is to the point that it, it sort of blends live action into the game, which I think at the time would have probably been a bit of a wow moment. Looking at it now, you're like, you know, it obviously goes from like a film clip and then all of a sudden Aragorn might not actually have fingers or something. <laughs> and yeah, it's like, like ugh. Um, yeah, it's like but, one sec. One second ago, that was Gimli. Now it's a foot with a helmet. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there's some, yeah, some some slightly w- weird stuff with that. But like, yeah, I remember them definitely leaning into it. Um, it feeling like quite a fun bit of fan service. Feeling quite authentic. Looking back on it, like watching some of it today, I, I, I haven't replayed this for this. So I, I should I should add, incredibly dark game, <laughs> like very just visually very very hard to see a lot of it, um, <laughs> which which maybe kind of like helps sell how like amazing it, it looked just because you can't see any kind of rough edges because um, it's so dark. Um, I saw a, an interesting thing actually, someone positing that they thought this may have been just an Aragon game at one point um. Um, because. It's kind of told from his perspective. The tutorial character has basically the same controls as Aragorn, mm. and the cutscenes are often Aragorn folk. Like it, it, you, you play the Aragorn role in the film, and if you don't play as Aragorn, it, it, it casts Aragorn as the other characters in quite a weird way. So, yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> one. Yeah, I can yeah. So of... like the yeah. basically the Battle of Helm's Deep. If you if you play as Legolas. Aragorn basically does all the Legolas scenes in that in that fight, sort of shooting all the arrows down the steps and all that. So that's a bit odd. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think it's because so the, 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 that is a good theory that it might have just been an Aragorn game. I can sort of see that because yeah, he is present for all the different um, set pieces. But like, um, I think that it's partly because if you play as Legolas in those Helm's Deep bits, you kind of need someone else who's ranged to fire arrows, and like Gimli yeah. throws axes and he's not as good, so I always think that's why they defaulted to Aragorn. That's mm. really granular, but one of the things I actually like about this game is how they um, actually delineate between the three characters. So you have Gimli, who's this quite heavy, um, kind of short-range guy, and his long-range attack isn't like as fast as um, uh, either Legolas or Aragorn, but he's like very like deadly up close. And then you have Legolas, who is um, very light and like um, can fire arrows really quickly and has quite a lot of them to shoot. And then you have Aragorn, who's like smack bang in the middle in terms of like expertise. You see in the first film that he's got like a bow and arrow, and so he can use it, but he's never as good as Legolas with using it. And so I thought that was actually like really elegantly done. And like um, this is best described as like a side-scrolling hack and slash game. Like it's got it's a little bit Devil May Cry. It's definitely not as nuanced as Devil May Cry. Mm. But um, it would it would kind of rate you on like good, great, um, perfect kind of like um, uh, sort of and, and bad kind of like kills of enemies, and it would encourage you to be sort of creative with your combos. Uh, the progression system in this was unlocking more combos. Has some nice, really kind of like thumpy attacks where you'd like um, sort of do AOE damage and knock over like three Eric high, and that that was really cool. Had a really kind of quite nice. Think you had to press square and R two. Um, this is a man who has definitely played this game for a hundred hours. <laughs> 
I don't have as much of this to say about every game, I should say. Um, particular soft spot for this one. And then, like, if you if you press the button combination right, the entire fight around you stops and you perform this, like, perfect kill on the... On the um, on the uh, enemy which is really cool um oh, nice. what what it lacks is it lacks scale um it feels quite like it happened quite quickly and um you never quite feel like you're fully at helm's deep it breaks helm's deep up into basically there's a, a, a bit where you're knocking down ladders that are higher climbing then there's a bit where you're um shooting these like basically like uh, gunpowder wielding urukai they're just blowing up constantly um at this like exposed wall and um then there's uh, finally a big fight in a courtyard which um still isn't really like massive scale so even though mm. the cutscenes you see the big peter jackson um kind of like set pieces you never quite get the same sense of it in the game so yes yeah, so, yeah. i was quite fond of it it also had a kind of like um devil may cry bloody palace style um kind of like post game mode where you basically went up the tower of orthanc clearing out um floors after floor of different enemies until you got to the top and then it's <laughs> such a there. video game concept <laughs> climb climb old uh saruman's tower <laughs> killing enemies on every floor <laughs> Yeah, and then at the end you get to hear very off-brand um, Christopher Lee. Uh, it's definitely not him. Basically taunt you and then fly off as a crow or something. I don't know. Um, but um, I was big into this, and then like Isildur, the, who you play in the tutorial, he was the um, unlockable bonus character. So I, th- I, was I thought that was this. cool. The fact that it had the opening to the film as like a playable level. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, just because it also allows them to tell the entire story of, of the film because mm. they start back then and do all the Galadriel stuff. And like, like you say, this was like a big show off what a DVD kind of console can do game where it's mm. like, you know, here are some, here are literally clips from the film before the film's actually out in the case of the Two Towers. And then it transitions into gameplay. What I will say, Vigo Mortensen. In the voice acting for this game is the most tired sounding man I've ever heard. Like it's like, what if Aragorn just took like four Somonex and drank a <laughs> bottle of whiskey? Like it's just like not. He didn't. He didn't sound like he was doing his best work. I'll be honest. It's no. Um, it's definitely him, right? <laughs> yeah, it's him. Yeah, because you see him in the behind um, the right. scenes clips, and he seems a bit like, why am I here? About the whole thing. Um, it's not as good as his performance in A History of Violence. I'll be honest, but. Um, <laughs> uh so yes um it's top five though <laughs> for sure um so that's uh the two towers game matthew i was weirdly obsessed with it and then the next year came return of the king which was actually developed in-house at ea uh this was so good looking for the time and this did have more of the scale that the, that last game lacked i personally thought the combat system wasn't as good i didn't think it quite had the same i don't know just the, the same feel and i don't think they did the extra characters he added as well so you could play as frodo in this one and sam and uh, gandalf doing spells and stuff i also personally was much more into the helm's deep set piece than the minus tirith being invaded set piece and then mm. running across pelinor fields all that stuff and also like the whole army of the dead thing was pretty daft i didn't think that was a very good uh sort of plot device uh sorry tolkien um uh, but yeah um i did you play this one because this was actually acclaimed this was like properly rated by media at the time it's like over an eight over 80 on metacritic yeah I've, i i again how i'm not entirely sure but i've 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 watching bits today i was like oh yeah i remember this it had yeah i think it, it didn't have the, it didn't use the same like film game interplay thing as the first game i don't think i don't think it's quite as pronounced but it's still i'm pretty sure it still has film cut scenes in it um yeah 
Yeah. I just I remember the first one being maybe a bit more like complete fan service. Um, looking at some of the clips of this today, I thought, oh wow, they really ripped off God of War. It was before God of War, yeah. um, which is absurd in terms of like you're fighting in the foreground and something amazing's happening in the background, mm. which is a trick I've you know I've always sort of loved, but I thought was sort of I, I don't know I. I pioneered elsewhere but it yeah it it looks pretty amazing i'd forgotten how good these games looked actually yeah i think this one looks like a notably a step above the two towers as well like the characters have a lot more definition and um it feels very big budget uh, because you know these were the big budget games of the day really but i think um it's easy to conflate some of the naffa james bond games that were happening around this time with how ea was handling this license which was a lot better um mm. so I mean, this is this so this is like the the studio that goes on to be Visceral Games, right? Because this is this is like I'm pretty sure Glenn Schofield's involved in this one. Um, uh, I think so. I've I think seen, so, yeah. yeah, I think I saw his name in some like developer diaries and things. So I was looking at it, going like, is there any take on this where you can say like, oh, here are elements of like the proto Visceral thing, but it's quite hard to touch to tie this to like Dead Space. Um, <laughs> it's going to do quite an arduous link of. There's a there's a bit where you fight zombies and ghosts in the paths of the dead, yeah. um, but I don't know. If, I don't think you can say like, hmm, does this feel like a, an early take at uh, Dante's Inferno? <laughs> <laughs> no. I think like there's there's maybe something in that. I mean, it is like the set piece presentation is very good. There is like Nazgul flying around in the background and shit, and like they simply didn't do that stuff in the Two Towers game. Probably because they didn't have time. Probably because they mm. made it in a year. You know. So yeah, I think it's um it's it was actually like legit for the time and people I definitely think people have forgotten how acclaimed this was. Note to the listener at home, that is not me saying go buy this on eBay. Um <laughs> I would say just go watch it on YouTube just to kind of remind yourself of how pretty it was and then look at some of the review scores because yeah, this was acclaimed. My own um sort of former sub editor uh, Tony Ellis reviewed this piece of gamer and gave it 83% and I think even compared it to the um illustrations of Alan Lee if I recall. But uh, wow. yeah, so very what shiny awesome. but I <laughs> yeah, I slightly prefer the two towers. I think it was just, I don't know, I think I preferred having three characters down one path rather than like all these different characters off doing their own thing. I was never interested in playing as the Hobbits, for example. Um, yeah, they're quite a, quite a hard sell, you know, just yeah. very weak, scared, two weak, scared boys. <laughs> uh, like, again, that's just real life, <laughs> so... Yeah, I think it's even got a bit in um, Mount Doom, this one, where Frodo is kind of running around and presumably about to have his finger bitten off by Gollum. But um, yeah, tough <laughs> tough break for Frodo Baggins. But um, yes, so that's the that's Return of the King. That was 2003. After that, um, I'm going to bundle two games together here. So um, Lord of the Rings, The Battle for Middle-Earth, that was in 2004. And then there's a sequel in 2006. And um, these were real-time strategy games on PC. Uh, the second one was actually released on Xbox 360 as well during a time where EA was doing kind of like Command & Conquer games that run 360 and PC. And um, these come right in the kind of middle, well, I suppose like towards the tail end of the sort of golden age of the RTS. Um, just they were still big business at the time. And this was like the game I wanted more than anything else at the time. was something that properly <laughs> gave you that sort of like large-scale um, top-down view of the uh, of the action. And uh, the first one has more of a kind of like living map, quite lengthy campaign. The second ones are much more straightforward, um, pick good or bad, and then b- play a bunch of campaign missions for each one. And um, yeah, I think that they hold up pretty well. They're quite good looking games. So I actually played the second one on 360 today. 
I, uh, right. I'll confess, these are you cannot get hold of these on PC now unless you've got a disc drive and a way to get them working. Like they are just out there. All these games for me are just like you cannot buy them now. Um, and because these are PC only games, they kind of like doomed a little bit. But the fact mm. that um, the second one was on 360 means that you can actually get it and play it on um, on Xbox 360. And um, it does look pretty good. Like um, the controls are quite good. They use a kind of painting mechanic for you to select units. And it's got a fair amount of scale to it. Definitely better on PC, of course. And um, mm. has like HD mods to look at, make it look extra shiny. Is it, um, is it yeah. like a proper like... like so I must admit, I don't know anything about these games. Like I've never played them. I don't, I don't think I've even watched any footage of them. Is it like a base building, like resource grabbing type game? Or is it something a bit different? Yeah, it does have that element to it. Yeah, like um, it's sort of like you know the uh, the different factions will have their own ways of accumulating resources, and then you kind of build units, and then you push basically. And like um, the campaign missions are a bit more sort of bespoke, a bit more like oh these dudes are attacking from the south, so you have to build an army and like fend them off and stuff. But it has a skirmish mode, and you can go in there with um, set the number of resources you go in there with. Yeah, so it is actually like a proper strategy game. It has a bit more scale than something like Halo Wars, I would say, which right. um, you mentioned on the episode was a little bit like limited in its scope. Mm. This isn't like... Uh, some of the battles get pretty busy on 360. Um, you've got like eagles flying around. You've got like, you know, riders kind of um, running into like goblins. And it's just like a has lot it got those going big, on. Has it got those big elephant lads? Uh, yes. Yep. They're, um, they make the Classic. cut. Um, they like in the first game they had Rohan and Gondor as different races, and then in the second one they kind of merged the, the merged them into like one man race basically. Right. <laughs> and um, base, uh, what they do as well is in the second one they actually well the first one follows the plot of the films and has a lot of the film characters. The second one is like a kind of war going on in the north between like elves, dwarves, and other stuff. So you actually get some quite colourful looking elven and uh, dwarven units and stuff. And it's got a, it okay. takes this is where they start to take a bit more license with it, I think. But I think it does result in a in a pretty strong game. I was quite impressed by it. And um, yeah, they uh, <laughs> they got they roped in old uh, Hugo Weaving to do some narration for the second one. And he, he was he says things like um, purge the goblin filth and like the goblins will pay for this. And it's like pretty sure <laughs> that wasn't um, in the film script. And uh, then then like a a little version of Arwen, not played by Liv Tyler, will come on and be like, "Father, I have returned." And it's just a very strange mix. Like you sense them maybe losing grip of the license just because it, the right. films were over at that point so you know they just basically had to rope in who they could to do, do it does it use the characters as like hero unit units is there yes. like a arwen as sonya type deal yeah basically they've got like different sort of um powers they can apply in battle and um you have to keep them alive and stuff like that it's got loads of hero units actually and um because there are six factions in the second one that's a lot of different um characters who can take part so that side of things is done very well, I think. Um, it's actually these are legit, and it's a shame you can't get them on PC. These would be perfect for GOG, but I imagine the license is a nightmare to untangle. Um, mm. There's never been a, a Lord of the Rings Total War. Uh, no, I think there are mods for various Total War games where you can oh, do that. Though I think that would be so obvious. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It does seem like a good fit, but like I guess at the time EA just had the license, so they um, yeah they uh, they sat on it. So Matthew, I assume you didn't play these, right? No, no, not yeah, not at all. Um, I just yeah, just stra- strategy games. Uh, <laughs> not not my bag. Yeah, not even the allure of Lord of the Rings could uh, could pull me in. 
yeah, I missed out on them at the time just because my, my dad didn't have a PC powerful enough to play these, which was heartbreaking because I wanted to play these more than anything else. And uh, yeah, but they were, um, yeah, they were, they were definitely like good attempts at it. They were acclaimed by critics, very well liked. So right up to this point, you've still got EA basically making acclaimed games and based on this license. So um, they took it pretty seriously and um, put out some good stuff. So next up, probably the weirdest one we're going to discuss um, the Lord of the Rings, the Third Age, uh, 2005. So, I discussed this a bit on uh, a previous Games Court episode, and uh, I was absolved, of course. I'm I'm still alive in that reality, whatever it is. Um, yeah, I don't on... know what that was based on because I do not know this game. <laughs> so, it is a Final Fantasy X ripoff, and I was playing it this week, and it's so firmly a ripoff, down to the battle system, the fonts. The layout of the world, how random battles happen, the different powers—it's like, it's like the same game in so many ways. But it's really strange to see EA make a Japanese RPG, basically. But right. that is what they do. Right down to—I don't know if you remember Final Fantasy X. Their battle system um, shows you like a running order of who's about to yeah. attack, and like this game has that. They just took the whole thing and put it in this game. Um, <laughs> This, though, commits what I think is a bit of a sin with these games, which is, and I'm never into this, they don't have the characters from the film. They have knockoffs who are like the characters in the films. And I always think that washes a bit well, As in, like, voice actor knockoffs, or, like, the whole characters, like, a Gandalf are like. Yeah, well, Gandalf is in the story. This is where it's really weird, right? Right. Like, so you, one of your characters is called like a Berathor. They've got very generic names, <laughs> and it's like he's the your generic like um, you know Boromir Aragorn mashup. It's pretty, pretty much just you know the off-brand versions of these different characters, and they're sort of tailing the fellowship throughout the story. <laughs> um, <laughs> And they get involved in like all these different set pieces. They, you'll be surprised to learn, Matthew, that your party in this game were there when Gandalf fought the Balrog and watched him fall into the abyss. And well, they were uh, just on the other side of the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. But you fight in a battle with Gandalf against the Balrog, and like they basically, and then film clips play, and like. It's really, really weird. Like, really out there and wild. And, I like um, the idea that the suggestion that there were these other Fellowship of the Rings who were just, like, a bit late for starting off, and so they're <laughs> constantly, like, in the background, kind of squinting to try and see the action. And they're yeah. like, <laughs> when Gandalf falls down in the pit with the, with the Balrog, they're just like, oh, no, did he, did he go down? I can't see. I think he did. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I hope he didn't fall. That would have been terrible. They look sad. <laughs> They look sad about something. <laughs> I yeah. would, that game would be that would fucking rule a game with that tone. <laughs> yeah, they would. It would be like yeah, that would kind of work if it was like you and me or in the kind of like dummy yeah. fellowship. Do you know what I mean? Like we'd, except we would have deliberately have set off late. We're like yeah, we'll uh, we'll see you guys at the prancing pony. <laughs> yeah, and like we end up staying in like Brie for two days, and like we're like. We're like, listen, let's just go and put up with Tom Bombadil. He's awful, but it does mean we'll have an easier ride. Yeah, get us out of any responsibility. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, instead of taking like the the um, sort of ferry at that lake where the Nazgul were, we walk around and it takes fucking days. Like that'd be our vibe for sure. Um, so a genuine curio, this, but. I don't. I wouldn't say to people to go out, rush out and play this. I would say watch it on YouTube again, like check it out. I was like 
pleased to have played it. And when I tweeted about it, actually, a lot of our listeners said, oh, I have good memories of playing this. It's actually like, a, it's pretty good for what it is. A facsimile of Final Fantasy X. Again, as someone who loves that game, very strange to just see a retrofit version of it with knockoff Lord of the Rings characters. One of the strangest does, things I've ever seen. Does it have a Blitzball equivalent? <laughs> no, it doesn't. But like um, when a random battle starts, the um, Eye of Sauron can flash um, when the, in the transition screen and stuff. But it's mm-hmm. really weird how similar to Final Fantasy X it is. Like, I, so strange. Um, uh, but does it have good production values? Is it like is it still OEA still throwing money at Lord of the Rings? Yeah, it's got Ian McKellen recording new bad dialogue for it. Um, so they they went all out, yeah. So Ian McKellen was right there to the end, I think. I think there's like maybe some new Hugo Weaving dialogue in there too. Um, yeah, so um, it's it's a weird game, but I I kind of like enjoyed ticking it off. But um, I don't think I can get through all twenty hours of it. I got the Balrog bit, and I was like, right, I've seen this now. It's very silly. Um, oh well, thank you for your dedication of getting that far. Well, you know, it's just I've got to do my due diligence on the podcast. Um, yeah, yeah, it's not it's not that far into the game. They always throw the barrel at you pretty early in these games. Um, get 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 a bit spicy and then um, sort of trail off. Incidentally, um, the Two Towers and Return of the King both had Game Boy Advance games that are like Diablo ripoffs. And um, oh. don't get too excited; it's very very basic <laughs> and um, uh, kind of isometric sort of game. But like, um, yeah, you kind of go through these dungeons, kind of hacking and slashing enemies, picking up loot and stuff. So, uh, yeah, this is back in the days where obviously a handheld version of a game would be completely different to the um, the main thing. So, uh, yeah, interesting times. But um, it'd have the same the same sexy box art though as the console games. You'd be like, oh, cool, that looks so good. And then you <laughs> buy it and be like, what, what? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like that was definitely a thing. Um, so yeah, uh, EA still kind of flying high here, mid noughties I guess Lord of the Rings interest was kind of latent. It sold a million copies apparently, so very popular. People wanted to play it, and uh, an RPG was a good fit for Lord of the Rings. And mm. um, if there's one criticism you could level at those PS2 games, they're very short. You could fire through them very quickly. So this was a lot longer, more than twenty hours. This game. So I, I actually I, I had a, a quick Return of the King thing I forgot to mention. Oh yeah, go on. Um, I was I was watching a video about it today, and someone was saying that. The, the guy was saying that the um, it had a bonus documentary about hobbits who like games, and it was a documentary about Elijah Wood and uh, Billy Boyd and Dominic Monaghan talking about which of them was the best gamer, and they were all like, "Oh, Elijah Wood's the best gamer. He's he's really good." And this guy in his video had um, I don't know how he'd done it. I don't know if it was like cameo or something, but he'd managed to get Sean Aston recording like a little clip. About like now saying like actually I you know I was really good at games so I don't know what Elijah Wood's talking about which I thought was quite sweet. <laughs> In the background, you clubbing his kid over the head with a bag. Yeah, <laughs> yeah his kid walks by with just a huge rucksack shaped indent in their head. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, <laughs> oh that's so funny. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's that is interesting. Yeah, I, he does some um, feature on the pit. They were like. Loads of DVD-style extras for the games, actually. Like, um, the first game, the uh, Two Towers game, that does have Elijah Wood kind of playing it in there and being like getting yeah. quite excited about it. Whereas <laughs> when they interview Viggo Mortensen and Ian McKellen about it, they're just like, I don't know what the fuck this is, but I'm here, I guess, kind of thing. Um, <laughs> the huge 2002 energy of Elijah Wood being like, oh my god, it looks just like me. And then you look at the character on screen and it's like... You know, it's basically just a rectangle with an Elijah Wood texture on it, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely like deep 2002 energy there. <laughs> um, yeah, so 
I think they were sort of like uh, there was they were throwing money at it, and it was manifesting in different ways. They'd always get the music, they'd always get the look right in theory, but um, mm. they would fluctuate wildly. So um, one of the cheapo games uh, I'm getting to here is the Lord of the Rings Tactics uh, 2005, a forgotten PSP only tactical RPG. Um, I meant to play this for this episode, but I didn't, so I just watched it a bit on YouTube. Um, very cheap looking, kind of like you know move characters across different squares just kind of a bit like knock it out sort of thing yeah um, um, that's a shame made it made use of the umd though it did play video clips from the films Ooh. in it because that was what the psp could do of course and so uh yeah but that you know uh, that's just sort of um i think speaks to how big the psp was at the time people just like I was, oh. I, I was hoping you were going to tell us like oh they, there's a tactics game and it was made by like julian gollop so even though it looks terrible it's got this amazing <laughs> pedigree because that you often get that where people are like oh actually this is like the final fantasy tactics guy he actually did this and you're like holy shit i didn't know that uh yeah. but sadly not it sounds like or like you'd hear about grasshopper doing like a fuck game based on burger king or something you're like holy <laughs> fuck i want to play this kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, so um, speaking of the money running out, uh, we come to the Lord of the Rings Conquest in 2009, so really far down the line. I was not a fan of this game. Don't massively blame Pandemic for this. They kind of were shut down like pretty soon after this and um, the Saboteur, their other game that they were working on. Um, and I was a big fan of the Battlefront games and the Mercenaries games. I thought they were a good studio, so it's kind of a bummer that they um, they just one of the studios that EA shut down. Mm. But um, this was really bad. It was really badly balanced. It was not fun to do any of the action in it, and it felt so off brand for uh, for Lord of the Rings. Like it felt really like they were just stretching beyond the the license into just being really kind of silly. So you're picking like mage, warrior, archer classes. Um, going to battle the kind of thing of note here is that when you play the evil campaign it ends with the battle rock invading the shire which is like quite <laughs> funny um but it's so cheaply done like i actually i this is weird a weird one regular listener matt pierce um gave he gave away a load of ps3 games that he had a few years ago and uh one of them the um that i took was lord of the rings conquest and i played it again a bit this week and it's just i find that the battlefront games from that era are really playable still but mm. this is just not good. Did you ever play this one, Matthew? <laughs> no, I, I I did not. Um, I remember it getting a rough ride at the time. And just thinking, like, mad that this thing is so perfect for it. The yeah. idea that it's not a good fit. And I was watching some of it today, and the combat just looked really flat. And, it, you know, just the third-person perspective or the way they framed the action like lost all the scale like you never saw the scale of the battle or the size of the battlefield it's it seemed in any of the footage just Mm. seemed you know you're constantly on battlements where there were big turrets blocking off you know what should have been the 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 vast lord of the rings sort of epic nature of it um yeah this to see this just looked hugely misguided yeah, it seemed like such a win on paper, but you're so late with it at this point as well. Like, 2009, like, it's just... Lord of the Rings is a little bit passe at this point, I think. Um, or at least as passe as it would ever get in its lifespan. Yeah. And so, you know, the idea of this game that comes along and just a very crude kind of take on on a, on a formula that was otherwise proved to be very, very good for Star Wars. Um, disappointing on two fronts. Disappointing Lord of the Rings game and disappointing that that, that Battlefront formula didn't, didn't extend beyond Star Wars because... Mm. Um, it is a good fit for a variety of different licenses, and in theory, this should have been good, but just didn't have the money or the time behind it. So, 
at that point, Matthew, um, EA loses the license. I think like at like midnight um, <laughs> of like t- the end of 2009, December 31st, like all the games go off sale because they no longer have the rights to them. <laughs> so at that point, uh, Warner Brothers, which is obviously spinning up as a publisher at this point, gets the license back and starts making their own games. And so they inject a little bit of money into it. The first game they make is The Lord of the Rings Aragorn's Quest. And um, this is like a kiddie game. I don't really have much to say about this here. It's like a Lego-style kiddie game. Do you have any thoughts on this one? this was all, like... I don't think we actually reviewed this in Endgamer. It's not... It's certainly not on... um, We're not on Metacritic for it, which is is odd. Um, I do remember someone playing in in the office for, like, Games Master. It had this quite nice framing device in that it was... It's sort of told after. It's like the trilogy from the perspective. It's you play as Aragorn, but it's like Sam Wise telling his kids about what Aragorn got up to, and it is like a slightly kind of kid-friendly take on it, which is okay because I think there is, you know, Lord of the Rings was like, weren't they PGs? I think I don't know. Well, there was some, you know, kids could see it and kids would be into it. It was just super flat and repetitive, a little bit like. Uh, like a fate, kind of like Fable, but like Fable Light or Fate, like my first Fable, in terms of how it played. Nothing, nothing particularly spectacular. I think didn't Ash on uh, Ash Day on Twitter say that he thought this might have been a Battalion Wars game at some point. Yeah, which um, I don't think quite makes sense, right? Because that was Kuju and this was TT Fusion, so I don't quite see how that was the yeah. case. But I guess maybe it has got it has. Like, I will say, like, the uh, Battalion Wars games did have, like, large worlds, which this sort of has. Right. I could I could almost draw a line, you know, based on that simple fact of, like, there's sort of similarities and the, the action isn't particularly satisfying. It hasn't got a lot of physical weight to it. But, yeah, I'd be... I, 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 annoyingly, that's a fact I've introduced into the podcast but forgot to research more. So, yeah, make of that what you will. <laughs> that's fine. We can just call that a dubious rumour and then we don't have to delete it from the podcast. Um, call, that's our new section of the podcast, which is <laughs> Ashley Day's dubious rumours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good stuff. Um, yeah, so I, I remember this kind of coming around. And again, I was really burned out on Lord of the Rings at this point. I was just not interested. And... I don't know, a kind of kiddie game. I, I think in terms of setting your stall out, a sort of kid-focused game just wasn't really what I was interested in. But um, mm. uh, that was um, that was very much me then, and me now wouldn't um, feel as passionately about such things. But, um, yeah, that was the Warner Brothers' first kind of, like, stab at it. And uh, I know it does sound interesting in terms of, like, scale and stuff. And uh, Warner Brothers would go on to bigger and better things. That didn't happen next, because the next game was The Lord of the Rings War in the North. So... This was by uh, Snowblind Studios, who uh, Warner Brothers acquired, and um, they were the creators of the Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance games on PS2. Uh, I don't know if our listeners kind of know those games, but they were like basically Diablo, but set in um, Baldur's Gate sort of universe, because they couldn't do Baldur's Gate on console at the time, but obviously, you know, um, very popular series on PC. So pretty solid, extremely hard games on PS2. This was a riff, again, on um, Diablo, but like this time... You again had like knockoff characters. Um, so you have like an a, an Aragorn like character, a Legolas like character, and a Gimli like character, and it's just 
they all meet um, Aragorn in the Prancing Pony before Frodo arrives, and that's the start of the story. And it's just from that point in, I was just like, Ugh, "This is not good." And um, <laughs> it didn't really win people around. It was kind of like just quite quite a rough and boring uh, take on that universe. Did you ever play this one, Matthew? I didn't, but I do like the idea that as well as the 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 party from the Third Age or whatever it was called. Mm. Um, who are like several days behind you have this third party which is like even further <laughs> behind or maybe in between the idea of all these like increasingly shitter fellowshippers of the ring kind of, of <laughs> I quite like that that pitch <laughs> well in theory they were slightly further ahead so oh, like right. so like well, uh, if they were they did a terrible job of it because by the time <laughs> everyone got there in the films it was still a fucking nightmare they hadn't done any work it's a bit more like um, the the kind of story sets it up as it, again, like I mentioned, that the um, battle for the uh, Middle Earth two uh, basically like was set in the kind of war in the north where there were like dwarves and elves battling some goblins or something, right. and this kind of like was set in that context. The thing I did like in this game was like one of your sort of like um, sort of ultimate moves was to basically call in the eagle, which would like dive bomb and then do a bunch of AOE damage and fly off. And I thought. Nice. Pretty sure that's not what they did in the uh, the books there. Bit um, bit off canon, um, but uh, yes. Um, so, how do you feel about side note? How do you feel about the people who complain? Why didn't they just use the eagles to fly all the way to Mount Doom? Uh, oh, I don't know. Like um, again, I think by the time that discourse spun up, I was like a bit done with Lord of the Rings. That was like the most tiresome discourse. You could see the look on someone's face if someone mentioned <laughs> Lord of the Rings. You could tell instantly the person in the in the room who's going to be that guy. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know, maybe the Eye of Sauron would have fucking shot it down or something. Um, I don't know. I have no idea. But yeah, that's just sort of like a, a, a sort of what counted as a conversation starter in the early noughties. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we um, we didn't have Twitter yet, so what could we do? Um, yeah. So, yeah, war, war in the North, not very good either. Next up, though, Lego Lord of the Rings in 2012. Mm. Oh, so good. I thought this was a great game. A really nice translation of the films. The first in the Lego series to actually use like voice clips from the films, integrated very well, but obviously given that trademark uh, silly touch uh, to retell the story. But like um, notably introduced like a, a an open world uh, sort of like Middle Earth to walk around. Basically, you can mm. walk from uh, Hobbit on to you know basically Mount Doom and um, do the entire journey and kind of free roam and then kind of revisit it with the different characters later on. I thought this was hugely impressive and they put some like real effort into capturing like the lighting and the style of of the setting and um it was a real step up for Lego games at a time where I thought they were getting really good actually Matthew did you um, play this one Yeah yeah no I I completely agree I mean I think they've always been just amazing at at sort of harnessing licenses when they have them well they always have them but like their art team just do like wondrous things in terms of really putting you in those places and recreating them like they're sort of sort of it seems condescending to say they're secretly some of the best looking games sort of around but they kind of are you know you don't really think of them as that but you know because maybe some of the backgrounds aren't interactive or anything but like the scale of them the variety of them what you see the fact that you get like you say the whole shebang and you know you get the levels that kind of dig deeper into set pieces but you get that open world to kind of tell the overall story i mean that's the structure that's missing from those early ea games i think these are probably the best lord of the rings games Hmm. in terms of like if you're into the films this gives you the most of the films to play 
I think the fact that the Lego games are a mixture of light combat, exploration and puzzle solving means that all the different characters make sense in this game. Like having the hobbits do their weird little hobbity things kind of makes perfect sense. You can do smaller levels, which are, you know, more narratively focused, like the stuff you do with Gollum in this. But you can also do the its version of you know hell's deep or the big battles and they're pretty cool like the big battlefield scenes in this so in this correct me if i'm wrong i think this also opens with the same playable prologue that two towers did uh in terms of you get to play that fight at the start and chop off old Sauron's fingers and all that <laughs> um so yeah like this just feels like totally totally comprehensive to me yeah, for sure. I think this is like the ultimate Lord of the Rings game. Like, it's the one that I was the most excited to replay this week. I was just kind of like, I just, because it feels just so detailed down to like the the very specific flavor of some of the kind of hub-like settings. Like mm. um, when you go to Hobbiton, it feels it feels like you're actually there. It just, it, cause mm. it, but in a slightly more kid-friendly uh, sort of like Lego flavor. And just like has obviously such love for the material. But um, just finds the right tonal balance to kind of not not offset what's um, what's good about them, and like, yeah, just really complete feeling. And um, it's right around the time as well that um, TT Games was doing like that Lego Batman Two, which is a game I loved, and then um, they would do the uh, Marvel Superheroes in twenty thirteen as well, which is one of my favorites too. So they were getting really good at integrating the open world stuff, um, mm. you know, just because it was kind of like the next frontier really for for those games because. You know, the, there is there was like an established puzzle adventure platformer formula, but like if you can add this stuff to it as well, it suddenly becomes something else. And mm. um, that that it's like that uh, sort of like fun little puzzle design writ large, and then the exploration bit they're actually quite good at as well because they're really good at packing their levels of secrets. So um, mm. yeah, real good this one, Matthew. Um, bit of a weird one in terms of like picking it up and playing it now. It's not on like any of the current gen consoles. Um, you can't buy it on Xbox, uh, the Xbox Store. Um, it is on Steam though. Um, so okay. uh, yeah that is a way that people can play it um, a Lego Hobbit game would follow I never played that one I confess do you play that one? no I didn't yeah, I'm I don't sure think it's it... fine I mean it's I think... got weaker source material but I'm sure they did just as careful a job <laughs> yeah I think they only did the first two films for that one um, oh that's right yeah. yep I, I hope kind of they um, side note for, for uh, TT I hope they bring out that Star Wars game soon that feels like they've been working on that for like 5,000 years it's, it's a great mystery how they've gone from being one of the most productive teams, like a couple of Lego games a year, to like there hasn't been one for a year and a half, two years, it feels like. I remember people were really buzzing about it when it was at E3. Yeah, I think you like fly between planets. It's, yeah. it, like, it's, it's, it's not just open world, it's like space. That's insane. That's, that's cool. <laughs> it has all nine films in it as well, right? So Yeah. Yeah, might be a big undertaking. And, yeah, uh, maybe it's just, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But it's just, it's just funny, like, there was a time where you were, like, so many Lego games, like, you just couldn't move from, there were, like, the Lego movies had their own games, um, yeah, I seen that we were reviewing one, like, every other week on O&M, but, um, yeah, I hope they come back and still nail it, because they're, like, some of the, the best kids' games around, or family games, I like them too, it's, you know, they're good for everyone. Yeah, for sure. And like um, around the same time too was also uh, Lego City Undercover, a very good game too. Oh, so, uh, that's so good. Yeah. Uh, if you ever do a Wii U draft, Matthew, I'm sure that'll come up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, what? It's, yeah. That's, that's great. Um, so yeah, that was um, that was the next Warner Brothers sort of like gambit. Then um, 
Finally, they do something big, expensive, and shiny, which is uh, it comes in 2014, uh, Middle-Earth Shadow of Mordor. So, Matthew, maybe you should chat about this one, because we're, we're equally experienced with these games. In fact, um, yeah. I haven't played Shadow of War as much, so um, I'll look forward to leaning on your expertise. Yeah, they, these are weird ones. I think they're I think they're good. Sometimes great games, but the the overall take is I don't think they're very good Lord of the Rings games. Like they are sort of set between The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, and is about basically what's going down in Mordor in that time. You play Talion, who is a um, ranger of gondor who gets killed at the start of the game and then gets sort of spliced with the soul of this dead elf blacksmith called Celebrimbor, who is a character from the extended lord of the rings lore uh, as told in the silmarillion which is like the the fuck off you know <laughs> tolkien sort of you know world bible or whatever you want to call it basically like- fills in all the gaps peter jackson took a lot of stuff from it for to like fatten the hobbit out into three films they've taken this thing so it's this weird splice where it's like a bit of tolkien in like celebrimbor and his whole deal which is kind of all about how the ring comes to be which is kind of interesting mixed in with stuff they've made up which is all italian stuff mixed in with a hint of the film like we said it is the golem like visual design i don't know if it is actually andy circus in the game but it you know it it's kind of riffs on that what's also strange is that these two games then have stuff which is in the film and kind of more so in shadow of war which is the sequel like shallop or shallop the spider shallop i think right yeah uh, and turns turns it into this like sexy lady, <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, which is so so. It's this real hodgepodge of like influences and art styles. Kind of hard to place it in specifically in the film universe. Um, it, and especially by the end of the second one, it feels like it's it's gone off. It's like it's, it's entirely its own thing in terms of like lore and how it fits into Lord of the Rings. Um, so I think as an actual like Lord of the Rings thing, it's a bit disastrous. I think as stories, I hate these games. Like mm. uh, they're very flat. Like it's very easy to lose. Like there isn't much story, and you lose track of it. Uh, that's mainly because what's interesting about it is it has this big emergent villain system, the nemesis system, where as you're killing orcs, if they kill you. They become stronger. They gain reputations. There's this big hierarchy of the world that's kind of like, it's basically persistent goons is the is the pitch. And that storytelling and keeping on top of what's going on with that is almost divorced entirely from what the games are about. So by the end, I think you're more invested in this story that you've crafted with the orcs than the actual Lord of the Rings stuff, which I don't think is a spicy take. I think most people will say, like, if anything, I think the more you're into Lord of the Rings, the more egregious you'll find what this does with that lore. I mean, in reality, you just fucking ignore it because it's just boring and you focus on chopping up orcs with a really good Batman Arkham combat system. Um, it's, it's basically the rough pitch here. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. That's basically it. Um, I think I like the idea that in this game you're sort of cheering on your orc fail son and uh, yeah. just being like, come on, lad, and then get them to the top of the chain, and that's very it's, satisfying. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's a weird one. Like, it's so derivative of Batman, and it's basically Batman meets the stealth from Assassin's Creed. Yeah, um, very similar. 
So similar. Um, distractingly so. And it's annoying because it's got this absolute, like, truly original idea at the heart of it, which is, you know, these persistent orcs, which is just... It's just brilliant, and and it can trigger some amazing things, particularly when you start like brainwashing them and sort of setting, sending them as almost like double agents back into the orc army to like trigger later as like sleeper cells, so they can start assassinating people. You can engineer some really cool stuff, but it's almost like you have to fight what the game actually wants you to do to really like engage properly with that stuff, which which has always been the problem. And then the sequel. It adds like a huge amount to that orc hierarchy and what you can do and orc behavior and those characters feel like a lot more there's a much bigger pool of traits for them to pull from and, and like much weirder characters emerge but it also blows the scale of the game out massively and it actually gets to a point where it feels like instead of playing one huge game with this amazing hierarchy you're kind of playing across like multiple world regions with smaller hierarchies i actually think the second game doesn't work as well as the first in terms of like that story emerging like it feels a lot bitter that you have you have lots of run-ins with lower level orcs rather than developing like one uber nemesis is is my memory of the sequel the funny thing about that first game is it's quite pared down there's like a sort of brown area and then a sort of green area and like you go around doing these sort of like very basic missions but the nemesis system is so clearly the heart of the game like it's the beating heart of it and it's the thing you pay attention to more than the objectives or anything else um just because it is so interesting and um yeah i think like anything it can do to give that stuff breathing room is good but if it's a big unwieldy open world game it's harder to do that right yeah yeah, definitely. There's there's just too much stuff distracting you. I think it, it just loses sight of its main strength in the sequel and it's annoying because they are on paper a lot more charismatic. Like this one that sings, for example, he sings little songs, so if he becomes your nemesis, you're gonna keep running into him and they've written a lot of like bespoke stuff for a lot of different characters or potential characters. Hmm. Um The interesting thing about these games is that the like the narrative mastermind behind them is the guy who is like the the narrative mastermind behind Fallout New Vegas. Okay. And he left Bethesda. Uh, he left Obsidian and went over to do this. And like the Nemesis system is is like the thing he makes is is the clever bit. But it did always strike me that like around that just how poor the story is. Uh, that's the thing I don't really understand is like how. You can have this cool like narrative design, but the actual nuts and bolts narrative is is very very bad. Um, like Gollum is is just confused. You know, the, the using famous faces from that world as quest givers. Gollum's basically there asking you to do you know little shitty Gollum things, and <laughs> uh, the Spider Lady there. It, it, it's just you know, it's just very clumsy. They crack out the the um, uh, Balrog again. Uh, as like a sort of boss character the second one has like more obvious lord of the ringsy stuff in it right. um but just none of it lands i don't think in terms of you know it doesn't trade on your love or nostalgia for those films it it, it doesn't do much with it um do you know the did you ever finish shadow of war no just the first one can i tell you how it ends yeah please do go no no go for it so yeah so the, big, the big thing I, I i hope i'm remembering this right is that um you basically, like, he ends, he, he ends, you, you forge this sort of second ring of power 
which you sort of use to Italian basically sort of stands guard for all eternity to sort of stop Sauron from leaving Mordor. Like he's going to be like sort of like the watcher on the wall forevermore, which is why like, you know, in the years between the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, it suggests he hasn't, he hasn't just come and like fucked up the world. It's because there's this one bloke with an amazing combat system (laughs) um, standing on a wall somewhere, but like the ring corrupts him and he basically ends up becoming one of the Nazgul in the films. Oh, right. That's wild. Yeah, that's its sort of thing. Is that he's one? That's what he. He's one of them. And then right at the end, obviously, you know, uh, Frodo chucks the ring into Mount Doom, and and you know when they sort of all the baddies disperse, he finally gets to step into the afterlife like as himself again. It's like the end of that game, which on paper it feels like quite a big swing, but it feels like this. It, it, it's kind of a shame. This this big cutscene attempt to like tie tie everything back into the films again because right. it sort of diverges it's it's yeah i don't know i don't really know how i feel about it <laughs> i have a kind of unifying theory on this which is i don't think that middle earth as a setting is fit to tell other kinds of stories fantasy stories i think it's a, a world that is built for the story they tell i mean yes mm. the appendices like suggest all this law and the silmarillion are like the fucking dead sea scrolls of like tolkien basically like it's just kind of like really out there if you want to read about the valar the gods of middle earth basically and all that stuff and oh, it's really wild i think personally that the reason something like a, a setting like dragon age or elder scrolls works so well is you can kind of make them fit what you what story you want to tell if mm. like there needs to be a kind of like a blight outbreak or like you know some gray wardens having a war or something you can just make up the rules of that universe i mean thedas <laughs> in dragon age is you know literally stands for the dragon age setting like it's it's a, <laughs> yeah. it's, a it's a purpose-built world to tell the stories they want to tell and like I find that a common thread with some of the weaker games here is they are just trying to tell a story around the edges of the the one big story, and it just mm. you can't do it. It's not built. It was wasn't it wasn't built to be like riffed on endlessly um, mm. to have these tie-ins and stuff. I always think that twist would have worked if they'd have stopped it at he's stuck on the wall, and then like, but then basically like you know it, it ensures that Sauron can never leave that tower. Um, unless he gets hold of the ring, so he can't. He has no other means of coming back, I guess. But yeah, there is yeah. there is some other. It, it, again, I'm a little murky on it because it's been a while. But there, it's sort of suggested that throughout the whole thing, like Celebrimbor is like the big is 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 equally bad. You know, you are powering up Celebrimbor to take down. He's he can take down Sauron once and for all. But he intends just to be another Sauron-esque character, and I'm pretty sure it suggests that like that flaming eye at the top of the tower, is Sauron and Celebrimbor, like, trapped in an eternal fight? <laughs> okay, that is wild. Um, yeah, like, he, like they are, they're constantly dueling, and it's sort of that eternal fight which stops him from being, el- you know, from fucking everyone else up. But, again, I'm probably missing a few key details from that, but I th- th- that's the rough shape of it. Yeah, I do appreciate that with these games, they did take a big swing, like, premise-wise. Like, they do kind of, like... <laughs> It's almost like they're resigned to the fact that the story is so silly that you'll never take it that seriously. Yeah. So, but 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 yeah. if you're going to do that, like I'd almost rather they 
just went like all out and brought in like some of the you know set it later set it closer to lord of the rings and brought in a lot of the big players rather than like oh we're going to set it here because we can't tread on anyone's toes oh but by the way we're going to end with such a ludicrous sort of swing that you know we maybe we should have just done a big silly lord of the rings game the whole time but yeah it just, it's like- i just it's got a very it's got a very tangled relationship with the films, the books, and itself as a standalone franchise. Yeah, that that game. It's very odd. Yeah, I feel like franchise extensions of um, Lord of the Rings are just doomed to this. Like um, the TV show is set in a an earlier era of like Middle Earth, and it's like I don't know. Maybe it'll prove me wrong. They've got a good director for the pilot, the guy who directed The Impossible, um, and like you know. Uh, but I just I don't know. This doesn't feel like there's a story to tell there. And then when you look at the way you extrapolate upon the um, different bits of lore for the Hobbit films, that they, that kind of falls flat. And the way that brings characters in feels very fan servicey. It's a real, it's just a real hard one to do when you're not just directly adapting the one story or the two stories that are in yeah. this universe. I think, yeah, yeah, I think you can have fun by going after and playing with like legacy if you're yeah. allowed. Like you, you can definitely riff on. Well, you know, the events you know and love are now history let's investigate that in some way or you know we can we can throw back to that in some fun ways i know that's like a huge cliche now and even and that has become tiresome in itself but i i would rather that than the the prequel thing i feel the same way about the game of thrones you know it's like do you really want to see what happened 400 years before not particularly yeah yeah Yeah, again like maybe not a universe built to tell all these different types of stories um yeah um, so the next up, Matthew, there is a Gollum game coming out. I don't know if you have um, many thoughts on that one. Yeah, I, I've had to write loads about this for like different, like just just different scripts over the years because it's been in production for quite a while. It's it's ended up on a lot of like ooh, games for twenty twenty or whatever lists. Mm. So I feel like I research it every year around this time of year for those list videos, which I inevitably end up writing. Right, um, and I really don't know because it isn't film license. It's yeah. its own thing, which is obviously a bit odd because their Gollum looks an awful lot like film Gollum. I don't know if that's just because that's what Gollum looks like and you just kind of have to deal with that. But I wonder if people will see that and go like, oh, Gollum, like in the films. And then the rest of it definitely isn't based on the films. It's like it's it's very it's it's got a very different look to it. I think it's set between again between the hobbit and lord of the rings i think there is crossover like you'll definitely go to you'll definitely go to more of the locations from the films and that you like you meet gandalf and things like that i don't think it's voiced by a mckellen or anything it's setting its own self-contained thing um it sounds like a bit of a weird sort of cinematic stealth platform game i don't really know why why they're making it i don't really understand it as a thing i don't really see the appeal like like you say it doesn't feel like there's a big lord of the rings resurgence coming unless they plan to release it alongside the tv show and hope that'll do it i don't know um yeah it's it's a puzzler that one those ps2 games did tick the box then like the uh the battle for middle earth games ticked another box and then lego lord of the rings sort of wrapped it all up um, in, a, in a package I quite liked, and so if I ever wanted that Lord of the Rings nostalgia hit in game form, the Lego game is the one I would play. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. What, what happens if someone, like for whatever reason, this would never happen? But someone basically did the EA action games again, but like mega modern production values, like 
you know mega graphics or like a really awesome combat system like a proper kind of devil may cry kind of like combos like god of war style production values for like boss fights would you go for it i think i would yeah like um you could almost see if you were just following one character in the fellowship in a kind of like god of war style one take cinematic game if it's just like basically that aragorn's quest idea but like as a whole game like for adults to play that could be really good but they're trapped in the cycle now of like do you get the off-brand voice actors um or do you try and get because there's no way the vigo monster would do it they would struggle they might get themselves into like the marvel's avengers position of like you're up against the film actors with these knockoff versions so it's kind of tough um mm. I don't know, Matthew. It's tough, and also like that's not the type of game that publishers tend to make these days. Is no, it? yeah, it, I mean, it's yeah, it's kind of looking at these games. It's just it is kind of amazing how far they've strayed from like what what was just the obvious thing to do back then. It's yeah. so different to what it is now. Yeah, it's also wild that like you know, just aside from the um, these are just the ones based on the films. Like based on the books, you've got the Lord of the Rings MMO from Turbine that's um, still going. You've got. Uh, you had that Hobbit game that was like a kiddie platformer on um, on like PS2, Xbox, GameCube. Uh, you had a very like they had one attempt at adapting the books um, wholesale in a, a game called Fellowship of the Ring, and they abandoned the other two because apparently the games went up to scratch. Mm. And like this, uh, there was so massive for so long. I feel like they just that was part of my fatigue with the series. I think is that like I was just seeing the license gets stretched more and more and it into like less and less satisfying results um mm. so such as it is matthew but the films of course they remain um very dear to my heart um when do you think you're, you're due for your next rewatch of these i don't know maybe i'll maybe i'll rewatch them over the christmas holidays we're um you know we've got a, a, a good a good week away um at the in-laws so um lots of tv time lots of sofa time planned might do it yeah, that's uh, that sounds good. Um, we won't be doing that in my parents' house because my mum fucking hates those films. So your uh, dad loves it. You said it's like brought your dad like probably the most joy he's had since you were born. <laughs> if not, you know, double the joy. Um, yeah, like he's just. But that's that's just you know the kind of like contradiction at the heart of that relationship is like you know one loves Lord of the Rings, one despises it, and yet they still make it work. You know, which I think says a lot about. Uh, love and um persist- <laughs> persistence um your mum loves the hobbit trilogy <laughs> yeah big uh she's a big um thorin stan um that's like her whole thing james uh, nesbitt in a barrel or whatever the fuck it is <laughs> that's the th- that is the other problem with those films right it's like you start at the top of the cast list you're like oh you know martin freeman and mckellen very good by the time you get to the bottom <laughs> it's like a fucking episode of cracker on itv in the 90s it's like yeah yeah we and like me is smaug <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a bit like that and then i think like is it luke evans who turns up in the last hobbit oh, you're like, the, isn't he your beetle the bard Something like that. Did he, I don't think he ever did any actual bard stuff. I just remember him running around while a dragon was setting fire to shit. It was just very, very <laughs> underwhelming, Matthew. And um, it had yeah. uh, it had quite a good uh, Lee pace as a sort of uh, smug elf. I remember. Yes, riding a, a big like stag. That was that was rad. Um, they cor- <laughs> he correctly identified Peter Jackson that Lee pace doing stuff in a quite a preposterous way is a good a good addition to your project um so that was a good that was a big win for everyone involved and uh yeah um uh, is that um he's in that uh foundation show right yeah he's 
it's probably the reason to watch it actually he's inc- he's incredibly smug and it's like it's like a it's like a mad cosmically pace it's it's i i actually quite enjoyed it foundation okay well there you go a nice tv recommendation to round us mm. out any further thoughts on lord of the rings matthew or should we get out of here Oh, let's, let's get out of here. Otherwise, this podcast is going to have more endings than Return to the King. <laughs> Which would be appropriate, yeah. Um, look forward to the extended edition of this podcast in about six months. <laughs> That'll be available on 4K Blu-ray. Um, you can look forward to that. Uh, so our next podcast is our final podcast, 2021, Games of the Year. Matthew, how's uh, that process going for you? I found it very stressful, I'll be honest. I've, I, I found it very stressful. Uh, I've been cramming in some oddball stuff, and I've added two games to my list in the last couple of days. Nice. Yep. I uh, shout out to um, uh, a certain time-travelling um, uh, sort of mystery game, which I tried to play, but was hungover. It had too much text in it, and so I'm going to have to bump it to next year, and so it won't make my top ten. Um, I'll say <laughs> what the game is when we get to the actual episode, but I'm sure people uh, will know what game we're talking about. So, yes, I look forward to that one, Matthew. That will be a monster, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Particularly on your side, because you have played every single computer game for 20 minutes. <laughs> and uh... <laughs> Only 20 minutes. <laughs> yep so that's good um but thank you very much for listening uh, if you'd like to follow the podcast on twitter it's backpage pod we always like hearing from you it's backpagegames at gmail.com if you want to email us i know i've been saying for a while now we're going to do a mailbag in the new year i think that'll probably be the first or second episode we do in 2022 so um i guess this is like a last call for any uh, emails for that but thank you for everyone who's emailed so far matthew where can people find you on social media uh, I'm at Mr. Basil underscore Pesto, or just search the, for the word Blorco. <laughs> yeah, he's the Blorco guy now. Yeah, that's and, me. Uh, it's Blorco guy, Matthew Blorco Castle. Yes, that's the end of the podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.